Welcome to the Sound Words Podcast, where it's our goal to help Christians love and live out God's Word. I'm Pastor Aaron Nicholson. I'm flying solo today because Pastor Jesse Randolph is at the pre-trib conference in Dallas, Texas, along with my in-laws and other members of our church. If you guys end up listening to this on your way home, know that I'm praying for you. Hope you have a safe trip and hope you had a great time at the conference. Today, I'd like to discuss what is the greatest commandment in the Christian life? What does it mean and what does it look like in our lives today? If you're looking for the greatest commandment in the Bible, fortunately, you don't have to wonder or search very hard for the answer. Jesus states it plainly for us in Matthew 22, 37 through 38. And before I read it, first allow me to paint the background for you just a little bit. In the Gospels, throughout Jesus' ministry, we can see the tension building between Jesus and the religious leaders in Israel. He's healing people of their diseases, he's teaching them truths they've never heard before, and teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes, Matthew 7, 29. When we arrive at Matthew 22, we see the religious leaders teaming up against Jesus. Like catching a bird in a net, we see them attempting to trap Jesus in what he says. Now, the first trap is cast by the Pharisees and the Herodians in Matthew twenty-two seventeen, regarding taxes and whether or not believers should pay taxes to Rome. The second trap is said in verse 23, this time it's from the Sadducees, who asked a crazy hypothetical question about marriage and remarriage, and whose wife will this woman be in the resurrection, which is a doctrine they didn't believe in. And Jesus silenced them by saying there's no marriage in heaven, and that even Moses taught about the resurrection in Exodus 3, 6. Then finally, the Pharisees cast another lure at Jesus in verse 35. This time it was from a lawyer. Matthew calls him a lawyer, and Mark 12, 28, the parallel account of this event, calls him a scribe. He was a, an unusually gifted expert in the law. If anyone could stump Jesus in what he said, it'd be this man. So Mark 12 tells us that this lawyer heard the conversation, recognized Jesus was answering well, and asked his question about which is the greatest commandment in the Mosaic Law. Now, the lawyer picked this question because there are 613 laws in the Mosaic Law, and these religious groups divided them into groups of light laws and heavy laws. They would spend hours arguing about which is more important, and they would never agree on them. And for Jesus to narrow it down to one would be overly simplistic and ill-received because whatever Jesus said, they knew he would unquestionably offend at least one of the groups. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-five, it says, One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. Now, the amazing thing here is that Jesus wasn't telling him anything new. After all, this was the great Shema, a word that means here in Hebrew. The Jews would have been quite familiar with the Shema from Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, which starts out, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Not only did they know these verses because they're written in the Torah, but a faithful Jew in Jesus' day would recite the Shema two times a day, once in the morning and once in the evening. 
Furthermore, these words were often written in phylacteries, worn on foreheads and left arms, and placed in mezuzahs, small boxes that Jews attached to their doorposts and gates. They were simply following the literal instructions of Deuteronomy 6, 8 through 9, which says, Bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So essentially, Jesus was saying to the lawyer that the greatest commandment was the commandment that you recite every day, and the commandment that many of you bind on your forehead, arms, and doorposts. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Now, instead of stopping there, Jesus went beyond the lawyer's question and also clarified the second greatest commandment. In verse 39, he said, The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is from Leviticus 19.18, another passage that the Jews would have known well. Now, this was not what the religious leaders expected. I have to imagine that they were probably disinterested by Jesus' answer. Like the Athenians in Acts 17.21, who used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new, the scribes and Pharisees probably wanted to hear a new argument from Jesus. They wanted a new point of view, or at least for Jesus to pick one of their sides so they could win the favor of the people. But instead, Jesus confronted their hypocrisy head on. If you want to please God, do what God's told you since the beginning. Do the simple commands that you know, the ones you've memorized, the ones that you recite every day, and the simple commands that have been recorded by Moses 1,400 years ago. And then Jesus stressed the importance of these commands in the next verse. He said, on, the, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Like hinges on a door, these two commandments support the whole of God's word. Mark 12 records, there is no other commandment greater than these. Well, if these two are the greatest commandments in the Bible given to us by our Lord, then we would be wise to learn what they mean, right? So what does it mean to love the Lord? How do we do it? Well, to love the Lord is to put him first above all things. It's to treasure him, want him, choose him above all else. Love him because he first loved us. We are incapable of producing this kind of love on our own. It has to come from God first. In Greek, the root word for love here is agape. It's different from phileo, a brotherly, affectionate love, or eros, a sensual love, not mentioned in scripture. Agape love for the Lord means that out of all the priorities, responsibilities, and goals in your life, he is to be number one, no matter how you feel. Jesus made this inescapably clear in the Gospels. In Matthew 10, 37, he says that you must love him more than your family. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In Luke 14, 33, he says you must love him more than what you own. So then none of you can be my disciples who does not give up all his possessions. This is the hardest one. In Luke 14, 26, He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. 
that fits right in line with the qualities of this love that Jesus laid out in Matthew twenty two thirty seven. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And Mark 12, 8 adds, and with all your strength. Now, Jesus isn't suggesting that we compartmentalize our love for him in three or four different ways. Instead, he is describing the totality of our love, the comprehensive nature of our love. It's a love that involves all our thoughts, all our will, all our emotions, and the sum of our entire being. It's genuine, unhypocritical love for God. Now, let me ask you, what would it look like in your life if you had this kind of love for God? Or think about someone else. What would a person like this think, say, and do? Well, this person would look like Jesus. Jesus never sinned. He loved God perfectly. He exemplified not only the foremost commandment, but also the second in Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine: You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus respected his parents when he was young. He studied God's word inside and out. He memorized it. He resisted temptation. He was impartial to people, compassionate to the weak, truthful with everyone. He was always praying, always giving, always thankful. And at the end of his life, he was ultimately selfless. If you want an example of Christ-like love for God and others, then just open your Bible and read through the Gospels. Read the accounts of Christ's life and be in awe of the way he treated people and the way he treated his father. And then, of course, for the pinnacle example of agape love, turn to Romans 5, 7 through 8, and there you'll see a comparison of what impressive human love looks like compared to the perfect Christ-like love. Verse 7 says, For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, in the best case scenario, you might die for a friend or a good person. But would you die for a sinner? Would you die for your enemy? The person who hates you? Who doesn't want you to die for them? These are descriptions of ourselves. Before salvation, we were hateful, selfish sinners. Titus 3.3 says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But God loved us so much that he died for us even in our sinful condition. And this is the kind of love that we are to have in return for God and for others. Now you might say, Well, I'll never get that opportunity to give my life for someone else, and I pray that you don't. But instead of imagining whether or not you would die for someone one day, ask yourself if you're living for Jesus Christ every day. Every day, every meeting, every conversation, every minute in the car, every minute walking, talking, listening, eating, resting, and thinking is an opportunity to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And loving God doesn't happen in a vacuum. It isn't limited to reading, praying, and singing songs directly to God in isolation. No, loving God is loving those whom he loves. This couldn't be more clear uh, as it is in 1 John. 1 John 4.20 says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. It's true. You cannot see God with your eyes. He is invisible. 
but you can see the believers that God put in front of you, and you can recognize that you're not loving them because they're lovable, because it is easier to love some people than others, isn't it? It's easy to love that person who always asks about your day and takes an interest in your life. It's easy to love that person who gives you gifts and treats you well. But do you know what is radical about the kind of love Jesus calls us to? Jesus calls us to go further and love our enemies and even pray for those who persecute us. Can you think of someone who treated you poorly recently? How often do you think about loving them and praying for them? I know I fall short here. In Luke 6, 27 through 36, I find this very convicting. Jesus calls us to a high, high standard. He says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Has God made His point? The love God requires is different than anything you see in the world. It's unconditional. That means it's not based on any pre-existing condition. We weren't a part of his family, and we weren't taking an interest in him. We weren't bringing God any gifts. No, God had no good reason to love us. That's why it says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus tells his disciples that if you have this kind of love, it will identify you as his followers. John 13, 35, he says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So, of course, Jesus is the best example of love, and you can look at other lives in scripture, but outside of scripture, I would also commend to you um, reading about the life of a man named Robert Chapman. There's a book by Robert Peterson and Alexander Strzok called Agape Leadership, Lessons in Spiritual Leadership from the Life of R.C. Chapman. And if you haven't read it, it's worth a read. R.C. Chapman provides an extraordinary example of Christ-like love in his life. He was a respected Christian leader in England during the last century, and he became famous for love in his time, and there are some great stories about him. For example, a letter from overseas was once addressed simply to R.C. Chapman, University of Love, England. Yet so well known was its intended recipient and his reputation that it was correctly delivered to Robert Chapman. Chapman asks his guests in another account here to leave their shoes or boots outside of their rooms so that he could clean them. When people objected, Chapman wouldn't relent. One guest remembers Chapman saying, it is not the custom in our day to wash another's feet. That which most nearly corresponds to this command of the Lord is to clean each other's boots. 
Apparently, early in his ministry, Chapman's friends were not impressed with his preaching. They told him to give it up. Chapman replied with love, There are many who preach Christ, but not so many who live Christ. My great aim will be to live Christ. And I think that's so perfect. And there are other examples you could find as well, but R.C. Chapman stands out to me. Like Chapman, God has to be first in your life. There's no way around it. Lukewarm fondness for God won't do. He wants our total devotion. Now, at this point, you might be saying, Aaron, this is impossible. No one can love God the way you're describing. No one can love God perfectly, not even Robert Chapman. If you're saying that, then praise God, you get it. Jesus was constantly showing the Jews that they can never live up to the standard God set. Keeping the Mosaic law would never save anyone because no one could keep it. It only pointed to mankind's sinfulness and his desperate need of a savior. So if you feel destitute and sick over the fact that you cannot keep God's greatest commandment, then you're in a good spot. Matthew 9, 31 through 32, Jesus said, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Matthew 5.3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And Revelation 22.17 says, Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. If you recognize your spiritual poverty, then you are ready to call out to God. Admit your sin. Believe in Jesus Christ, God's Son, who died on the cross for you and rose again for you. If you turn from your sin and follow him, then you'll be his child. You'll be a Christian and you'll be saved from the power and penalty of your sins. And one day you'll be saved from the presence of all sin in heaven. How awesome will that be? And if you have any questions about that, don't hesitate to reach out to us here at Indian Hills Community Church and we would be just overjoyed to talk with you further. And believer, if you do know him today, don't forget your need for the Savior. Remember Ephesians 2, 3 through 5, which says, Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. The more we understand our spiritual bankruptcy, the more we'll love the one who paid our debt. And we must grow in that love. Now, some of you might be thinking, okay, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. I've repented of my sins and turned to him, but I don't feel any love from God or I don't feel like I love God. What should I do? Well, if you're feeling this way, then I would encourage you in five ways. Number one, Make sure that you are a believer. That's the most important thing. Make sure that you really do know the Savior and that you've really made him Lord of your life. There's no question, sin in our life brings about doubt. A believer cannot practice sin. A believer cannot live in sin. I like what John MacArthur says, it's not perfection, it's direction. What is the trajectory of your life? Do you love the Lord more today than you did a year ago? Are you putting off the deeds of the flesh and bearing the fruits of the Spirit, or bearing the fruit of the Spirit? If not, repent or come to Him humbly in salvation for the first time. 
Number two, if you're feeling this way, recognize that feelings come and go. If you are saved, then you have a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God has not changed the terms of peace. He has not taken away his love from you. See Romans 8.38. And recognize that any feelings of distance are coming from you. You're the one who is changing. And that may sound harsh, but biblically it's true. Number three, pray. Spend time with God. Tell him how you're feeling. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Or another favorite is Philippians 4, 6-7, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So pray to him. I love the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. It highlights this need to pray for him when it says, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. The answer to feeling a lack of love might be as simple as prayer. We just need to do it and take advantage of the privilege we have to come to God with our requests. Number four, if you're feeling a lack of love for the Lord, spend time in his word. God wrote you a letter and he wants you to read it. His word is powerful. Pastor Dwayne Nelson just taught on Psalm 19 here at our church recently. Verses seven through nine says, the word of God restores the soul, makes wise the simple, rejoices the heart, enlightens the eyes, endures forever, and is righteous altogether. You could also spend time in Psalm 119. That whole psalm is about man's love for God and his word. Recognize that the word of God will change you. Yes, it may offend you, challenge you, sharpen you, but it's for good. 1 Peter 2, 2 says, Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. And number five, last here, spend time with other believers. God didn't intend for you to walk alone. If you're a believer in Christ, then you belong in a church full of other believers who can encourage you, exhort you, and help you in your faith. And in particular, I think it's helpful to develop a deep relationship with one or two believers, maybe an older believer or a mature believer that you know will hold you accountable and challenge you to grow in your walk. And keep in mind, you too have a spiritual gift given by God for the edification of other saints, and you ought to use it just for that. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So find a church that teaches the truth of God's word and sticks to it, and then start serving. Just jump in. Ask how you can help other believers. And if no, if no formal ministry presents itself, just start taking an interest in other people. Start thinking about how you might stimulate someone else to love and good deeds. I hope that's helpful. Again, don't hesitate to reach out to us here at Indian Hills and Pastor Jesse or I or another pastor here would be happy to discuss these things more with you and encourage you in your walk. In conclusion, the greatest commandment 
is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Soundwords podcast, and I hope you have a great day.